to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, I'm going to read here for the beginning, at the beginning, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then I'm also going to read a few verses from John 19. That will be on the screen, so you can turn there if you want, or you can follow along on the screen. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated uh, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now I'm going to read to you um, from John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, we have been in a series called God's Great Story. We had been going through the book of Mark, and we will continue the book of Mark um, after... Easter. So this week and next week, we have the second half of God's great uh, story. And before we jump into Act 3 of the biblical story, I want to recap very quickly the last two weeks. In week one, we saw the Creator and His creation, that we have a triune God. He had no beginning. He just was. He was before all things, and He created all things. And He formed and structured the world according to His wisdom and His authority, that everything that exists, you ever thought about this? Everything that exists, he spoke into existence. He created the trees, he created the grass, the air that we breathe, he created it all. And then he turned his attention towards humanity, that from the dust of the earth and the wind of God, the spirit of God, we were created, right? God created a people that would walk with him, dwell with him, people that would enjoy him forever. And in our creation, we had dignity as male and female, that we were created uniquely different than the birds. Uh, we were created uniquely different than the grass and the water, that we were created to commune with and worship God. That in Genesis 1 and 2, there was a word that we said, describe Genesis 1 and 2, and that word was shalom. All was as it should be. But in Act 2 of the story, we saw that everything broke. Everything Broke. Shalom was destroyed and all was as it shouldn't be. And when that shalom was broken, the wind of God in our lungs was lost and all that remained was 
Thus, as Paul says in Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator of uh, the creature rather than the creator. In the fall, it's not just that we made like an oopsie, right? It's not just that we made an oopsie and God looked at us and went, oh, it's no big deal. No, we have to understand just how deep the stain goes. And Kyle did a excellent job last week walking us through the doctrine of total depravity. If you haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But in order to understand fully what we are talking about today, we must first understand what we talked about last week, that in order to understand the magnitude of the grace of God, we must first understand the magnitude of sin. Adam and Eve broke perfect fellowship with the God of the universe by introducing sin into a sinless world. And now we, in our flesh, we are guilty before him. We are condemned by him. We are separated from him. And and here's the thing that's so hard for us to grasp, right? It's just hard for us to really wrap our minds around this. There's nothing that we can do about that. There's nothing that we can do about it. Romans 8.8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we have to acknowledge the issue, okay? We have a creator, God, who has created us for one purpose, to worship him. But because of our sin, scripture says that we are unable to do that. We are unable to please him. That it doesn't matter how hard we try in our flesh, we will always fall short. We are incapable and unable to do the primary thing that God has commanded us to do. You see the issue? We cannot worship him with all of our heart, soul, and minds. And so the terrifying reality is that because we are incapable of pleasing God, we now stand in judgment by God. It's Ephesians 2.1. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? Verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That we're dead. We're children of wrath. And so here's the question I want us to consider this morning. How can a just God, okay, how can, how can a just God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? How is that possible? Because in the heart of that question, we have a problem. As a just God, he cannot just give a pass to us for no reason. He can't just give a pass to us. That would violate his character. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So, God detests those who call the guilty innocent and those who call the innocent guilty because he's just. He's a good judge. He calls the guilty guilty, and he calls the innocent innocent. So when God comes to you and me as a good judge in our flesh, what will he say to us? Guilty, because he's a good judge. If he were to say innocent, he would be an abomination to himself. And that's the problem. Every man and woman is guilty before God. So the question is, how can God express his justice on sin without condemning Every single person on the globe, it's a fundamental problem of the entire universe. Now, most people around us aren't losing sleep on that question, right? They aren't asking, how is it possible for God to be both just and loving towards sinners at the same time? Most people are accusing God, saying, God, how can you even punish people? 
How can you even punish sinners? How can you let good people go to hell? But the question the Bible asks is the exact opposite. God, how can you be just and let guilty sinners into heaven? In other words, if God is to be just, if he is to be holy, then all sin must be punished. There are no exceptions. And if we are sinners, we must be judged and condemned by a holy and just God. And that leaves us with the question, what hope is there for us then? (laughs) What hope is there? What hope is there for us? And so in the next few moments, what I want to show you is just how stunning the grace of God is. Just how beautiful it is that in his word, he answers that very question for us, that he is a just God. But he's also full of mercy, he's full of love, and he's full of grace that I want to show us, want scripture to show us the story of redemption, that God has made a way to bring us from death to life, from sinner to saint. And we have one hero in this story. Spoiler, it's not us. The hero of the story is Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from Romans 5.8. Kyle read this last week, but it says, therefore, this is Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all, for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And I want to show you how that's true. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to move pretty fast. Um, I've already been told that I talk pretty quick. I'm going to talk really quick in the next few moments. Um, so you can try to follow along in your Bibles, but at minimum, I encourage you to take your notes app out in your phone, or if you're writing something and just write these scriptures down, they'll be on the screen uh, as well. And what I'm going to show you is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just the beginning. Like This is the pre-class to the intro class, okay, if you will. So uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So I want to show you from Genesis 3 all the way into the New Testament, just the stunning grace of God and the perfect plan of God. So from Genesis 3 on, we see the unfolding of the plan of God to redeem what was broken. We call this story the gospel, right? It means good news at its core. And in order for something to be good news, it has to invade bad circumstances, right? And as we talked about last week, that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 3, that we see the first invasion of the gospel in the midst of the fall, that Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they sin against God, and they break shalom. And God issues the curse in Genesis 3. But this curse wasn't just for us. He aims his attention at the adversary, at the serpent. And we know that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan because of what Revelation 12.9 says. It says, And the great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And God looks at Satan and he issues a curse on him. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, some of your translations may say crush, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That Genesis 3.15 has been labeled the proto-evangelium. If you want to impress your friends, you can use that phrase. The proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel that God is making a declaration here. Satan, from this woman will come one who will be your destruction. And God sets into motion the plan of redemption that is centered on the coming of one who will make all things 
right. But the gospel was not something that happened by accident. It did not happen by accident. Our redemption was orchestrated by a good God. And he did not look at us in our sin and throw us to the side. He didn't start over. He came and he got us. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's pursuit of his people. In Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, through your line, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God looks at Abraham and says, through you I will bring one. I will bring one who will bring blessing to humanity. And as you go throughout the story, God goes on to make a covenant with Abraham. He commits himself to him. And in Genesis 15, go ahead and turn there. Um, In Genesis 15, Abraham comes to God and says, hey, you have promised me a child, okay? You promised me a child, and I remain childless. So why should I trust you? That's essentially the question he asks. And then God tells him, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a ram, bring me a pigeon, which I would have loved to see them catch that pigeon. Um, And he tells them, bring all these animals, cut them in half, and lay them out. And you're like, whoa, this sermon just took a weird turn, right? Well, what's happening in Genesis 15? What we have in Genesis 15 is what's called the passing through the pieces, okay? When you made a covenant with someone during this time, you wouldn't just sign your name. You would act out the consequences of what would happen if you broke that covenant. You would take an animal, you would cut it in half, and then you would lay the pieces of that animal out, and you would walk through the center of those animals. This would happen with lords and peasants all the time. The, the, the Lord would promise to do good and, and help the peasant, and the peasant would uh, swear loyalty to the Lord, and they would swear this to one another as they were walking between the cut pieces of the animal. And in this moment, God and Abraham intend to act out the curse of the covenant. So in Genesis 15, the intention is for God and Abraham to make a covenant together. And if either of them would break their vow, then they are declaring, may this happen to me, may I be torn in two, may I die. But then when it comes time for them to pass through the pieces together, something interesting happens. In Genesis 15, 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him that God makes Abraham sleep. And then God shows up and what he does next is one of the most important moments in all of scripture, Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. When God would show up in the Old Testament, there would always be fire and smoke. It was the burning holiness of God and it was the mystery of God. And God doesn't look at a sleeping Abraham and say, hey, it's time to wake up, get up. What does he do? That God passes through the pieces alone by himself. And there we have the heart of the gospel, and it sets the trajectory for the rest of your Bible. By passing through the pieces alone, God is saying, Abraham, if I break my covenant to you, if I break my covenant to you, then may this be done to me. May I die. And Abraham, if you break your covenant to me, if you are not faithful to me, may this be done to me. May I die in your place. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? 
Does God keep his promises? Yeah, you bet he does. Do we keep ours? No. And when we get to Exodus, we see that the people of God, they're enslaved in Egypt, right? God comes to Moses, a human, and tells him, hey, I have come to, deli- I have come to deliver my people through you. I've made a covenant to them. And God comes to Moses, a human, and he tells him, hey, I am going to use you, a human, to deliver my people. And in Micah 6, 4, God says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He says, you were enslaved and I redeemed you. The story of Moses leading the people out of slavery, the Exodus, is just a foreshadow. It's a foreshadow to another man, Jesus Christ, who would take a people enslaved by sin and he would lead them to freedom, that he would redeem us. He would purchase us out of slavery. This is why over and over the New Testament will talk about how we have been set free. Because in our flesh, we were slaves to sin. And so many of us, we feel the weight of that slavery. That each day there is this weight on our shoulders, this weight of guilt, this weight of shame, this weight of performance. It says, I'm not worthy, I don't belong. And the shout of the New Testament is, you are free. The guilt and shame has been lifted. The old is gone and the new has come. That the guilt and shame has been lifted off your shoulders. That the promise of redemption is freedom. And then we get to David. Second Samuel, David wants to build a temple for God and tells him, no, you're not going to build a temple. I have so much more in store for you in my unfolding plan. In 2 Samuel 12, uh, he tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And notice, how long does the throne of the kingdom establish? Forever. And you see that promise repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, that there is one coming from David's line that will sit on the throne forever. So the people of God, time and time again, were looking for this one king from David's line that would rule over them for eternity. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, he talks about how the Prince of Peace would sit on the throne of David. In Jeremiah 23, 5, it talks about how a king from the line of David would bring perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Ezekiel 37 verse 24 talks about how the servant David shall be king and he will come as a shepherd and he will reign over a new covenant. Now notice, all these prophets were born long after David died. So the people of the Old Testament were waiting for this king that would be on the throne forever. He would bring peace, he would bring justice, and he would bring a new covenant. And when we get to Ezekiel, the people of God are a mess. All right, they are in exile because of their unfaithfulness to God. Like, it seems like there's no hope. Like, Ezekiel's a hard read, okay? The stain of sin is obvious. And honestly, we would look at that and go, God, I wouldn't blame you if you just gave up on them. Like, it wouldn't surprise any of us if God's just like, all right, I'm done. I'm done. If he just started over. But here's the truth we have to remember. If you are his, he will never be unfaithful to you. If you are his and you belong to him, he will never leave you. Like, that's how we think sometimes. You think, man, I wouldn't blame God if he just gave up on me. I wouldn't blame him if he just gave up on me. But listen, your sin, your guilt, your shame does not motivate God to throw up his hands and change his mind about you. 
Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So listen, if he has chosen you before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians 1 says, then it is impossible for God to change his mind about you because God doesn't change his mind. He's already called you. The one who has all authority and power, he does as he pleases. And if it pleases him to save you, to adopt you as his own, then he will do it because he's God. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, to a people that has fully rejected him, he says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'm going to put you, I will remove, I will put. And then Isaiah 7, 14, God reveals a key piece to his unfolding plan. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. You see the unfolding plan? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. It's the thread of the Old Testament. And when we get to Matthew's gospel, he begins the gospel by saying in verse 1, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The one you have been waiting for has come. The one that God told Abraham he would bless the families of the earth through. The one that would come from David's line, the offspring of David, who would be king forever, he's come. And then if you go down to verse 18 in Matthew 1, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You're like, okay, why are, you, are we going to the Christmas story? What's happening? I want you to notice the word birth there, right? That word birth in the Greek is the word Genesis. God is saying, I am doing something new, new life, a new start. That He's taking us back, right, to where our depravity began when we were separated from God. And now he says the genesis of Jesus Christ, the unfolding plan of God. That God himself has come. He has put on flesh and he has come to do what we could not. Um, in, in Mark chapter 8, uh, we're, we're going to talk about this actually in a few weeks. Um, Jesus is sitting with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. It's the furthest away they would be from Jewish life, like the furthest away from Jerusalem that they would be. And do you remember the question he asked them? He says, hey, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at him and says, I believe that you're the Christ, the Messiah, right? In other words, you are the one that his, all of history has been waiting for. Like grandma told me stories about you, Jesus. I've been waiting for you. You're the one from Abraham that, that God would use to bless all the families of the earth. You're the son of David. And then Jesus tells them why he has come. In Mark 8, 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7, right, coming in the clouds of heaven, the one who has authority, the king of all things. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the, uh, and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He unfolds his plan. He says, this is the plan of God, that God himself would submit himself to the judgment of sin. 
man, if we could really wrap our minds around this, right? We were dead, without hope, separated from God, children of wrath, condemned, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. As Kyle mentioned last week, it's not as if God threw us a rope that we could grab. God dove into the waters in his unfolding plan. He put his breath, his spirit back into our lungs and rose us back to life. And what we have to understand is that his death, the death of Christ, was necessary for our redemption. It had to happen. There was no other way. Like in that Mark 8 story, you remember how Peter responded to Jesus? In Mark chapter 8 and verse 32, it says he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What do you mean you're going to die? What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, you can't die. You're the Christ. And what does Jesus tell him? Verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying, to remove my suffering from the plan of God is a satanic idea. It is the providential plan of God that I die, that everything has been leading to this. And this is why in John 19, when Jesus is about to die, he says with his last breath, it is finished. So think about it. The one who created, the one who sustains, the one who commands the winds and the waves, he entered into death as a payment for our sins. For our sins. Paul will use a word to describe the significance of the death of Christ. Um, he'll use the word propitiation to describe it, um, which probably isn't a word that we use a lot, like, hey, man, how's propitiation going for you? Um, it's not something we'd say a lot. But in Romans 3.23, uh, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so propitiation is one image that God gives us that's the root of a lot of ideas in Scripture. You may have heard of justification, right? It's a courtroom image. It's the picture of a guilty person showing up to the courtroom and being declared right, that someone would take their sentence from them. We see images in the Bible of a conquering warrior, right? Uh, someone who has come to defeat the enemy that enslaves us. He defeats the sin and shame that rules us, and he takes their place as king. We see the picture of expiation. It's the picture of cleansing. I am dirty in my sin and my shame. In Christ's blood, like a waterfall, washes me Clean. We see the idea of reconciliation, um, that me and God are enemies, but Jesus Christ has gathered us at the table. He has reconciled us. He has brought us together, and we can have fellowship with our Creator because of Christ. But all of those images are rooted in one big one, propitiation. See, by way of promise, God had created a system in the law, a sacrificial system to make God's people temporarily right with God, that all throughout the Old Testament, God would require that a sacrifice was made on behalf of the people, that in order for us to have peace with God, there had to be an intercessor. And all throughout the prophet books, you will see them reference the temple. Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, he says, I will look towards the temple. 
that the temple was placed in the center of their country, in the center of Israel. And in the center of Israel was Jerusalem. And in the center of Jerusalem was the temple. And in that room, in the temple, there was a room. It's called the Holy of Holies. It was the picture of where God dwelt. And no one could enter that room because God is holy and man is not. There's only one thing in that room. It was a box. It was covered in gold. It had two big angels on top. And in that box were the commandments of God, the law carved in stone. And the idea was, if you can keep these commandments, if you can keep the law, then you could approach the presence of God. You could approach that box. But no one could, right? The people of God cannot be with God because of their sin. You cannot enjoy my presence. And yet, a day would come once a year when a, pre- when a priest would come in with an innocent lamb. He'd have a rope tied around his ankle because they were afraid as soon as it, they would enter that room, God would strike them down because a sinful person cannot commune with God without the justice of God being executed. So if the priest died, they could at least get him out with a rope. But the priest would enter, he would approach the box, and specifically they would approach the lid of the box. It had its own name, the mercy seat. And the priest would take the blood of an innocent lamb, he would cover the lid with it. He would cover the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb. And the picture was, when God looks at his law carved in stone in that box, he doesn't see our sin revealed when we can't follow that law, but he sees the blood of an innocent sacrifice, that that blood would cover my sin and I can commune with God. He doesn't see my sin, but rather he sees a payment. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price. That's propitiation. God's wrath is appeased. His wrath is satisfied in the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus declared it is finished, that's what he meant. This wasn't a temporary solution. This was an eternal solution. His blood is everlasting and it's final. The God who spoke the world into existence, the one who placed the stars and named them, the one who controls the winds and the waves, the one whose glory is beyond our imagination. We don't understand his glory because we can't even comprehend what it is. His holiness is beyond our complete understanding. He died. He humbled himself, and he died. And God's wrath was satisfied. So let me ask the question I asked earlier. God, how can you be just and let guilty sinners into heaven? Because in the death of Christ, God remained just. He did not sin. He was the perfect, spotless lamb. He was just, and he's the justifier that we are right with God because he died. And the way the Bible talks about us to have faith in Christ, the way that the Bible talks about the people that God dove down and woke up, brought from death to life, he says that you have been made new. You are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Scripture describes you as someone who has been born again. You have a new birth. That's how Jesus described our transformation. He says you are born again. In John 3, Jesus is sitting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, a teacher of the law. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I know that you're from God. I've been watching you. No one can do the things you do unless 
you are from God. And Jesus responds to that, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This confuses Nicodemus, as it should, right? And so Nicodemus says to him, uh, bro, how can a man be born again when he's old? Like, can I go back into my mother's womb and then just be born again? It's a crazy conversation if you really think about it. Um, And so Jesus responds to him and he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you're like, wait, why does Jesus mention water and spirit? What is that about? Remember the words of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 25. This is what God does. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then verse 27 in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we are born again because we have been cleansed by God from our sin. And he has put his spirit in us. Jesus goes on in verse 6 and says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, that those who are in the flesh cannot just decide to be born of the spirit. It's God who gives us a new work. And so he says, you must, verse 7 in John 3, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes. So it was with everyone who was born of the Spirit that this is not our doing. We do not approach the throne of God in pride. We approach in awe, we approach in humility, we approach in wonder. This amazing grace. We do not initiate our redemption any more than Lazarus initiated his resurrection. The resurrection of Lazarus to to his new life wasn't any more than Jesus yelling, come out. (laughs) It was the words of the king. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2.8. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. And here's what's so stunning about this story. It's not just that you have been redeemed from something. I think that um, Katie and, and we were talking about this on Tuesday with the worship team uh, when they were practicing. It's not just that you've been redeemed from something. It's also that you've been redeemed into something. Like, I think we have this limited view of what redemption is. And we just think, oh, I've been redeemed from death. I've been, and yes, that is beautiful. But man, it's so much more. It's also that you've been redeemed into something. You were redeemed from and you were redeemed into something new, something better. Like, just think about the words of Scripture. It's, that story is all throughout the Bible. Ephesians 2, 1, from death to now made alive. From Ephesians 2, 11, from alienated and far off to now brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 3, 3, from separated from God to hidden in Christ's life. Ephesians 2, 2 and Isaiah 9, 6, from under the power of the prince of the air to now under the rule of the prince of peace. Romans 6, 6, from slaves to sin to a life of slaves to Christ and freedom in Christ. Romans 8, 8, Romans 6, 17, from incapable of obeying God's law to now free to obey him in overflowing gratitude. Galatians 5, 16, from the desires of the flesh to walk by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, from unreconciled to God to ambassadors for Christ and message bearers of reconciliation. So I'm not done yet. Ephesians 2, 12, 1 Peter 1, 3, from being without hope to born again to a living hope. Isaiah 59, 3, Revelation 7, 14, from stained with blood of guilt 
to now washed white in the blood of the Lamb. This is who we are. We've been bought by his blood, treasured by his love, and chosen as his adopted children. And my prayer is that our family here would sing with hearts of gratitude. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, that your heart would sing with joy because he's better. He's better than anything else. And the only response that makes any kind of sense is joy. That's what you were created to do. Worship and joy. We're going to sing um, the song Before the Throne of God Above. It's a beautiful song, and one of the verses says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, which is our day-to-day life. We know the story in our brains, but we continue to come back to, man, God's just going to give up on me because I've, I've got shame. And we despair over it. So he says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And the question that each of us needs to ask is, do I believe that? Do I believe that I am redeemed by the blood of of Christ. Do you have faith in him? If you do, and maybe you have for a long time, this is just more of a reminder, um, I would just encourage you in these next few moments, just forget the people around you for a second and just pray and sing to your God with joy. If you've never worshipped him, if you have rejected him, if you say, hey man, I identify with the flesh way more than I identify with the spirit right now, I pray that you would say, you would recognize that he has died and he has risen from the grave. And you, maybe for the first time, would acknowledge the depth of grace of Christ and that he has saved your soul. 